I engage in a moment of self-reflection and I said, you know, I'm content and fulfilled in my life. I'm a happy person. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't need to do anything else. I mean, you know, if I step off the sidewalk and, you know, a truck hit me, I'd, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, I'm not going to be on deathbed and say, oh, you need to find a cure because I have so much more to live. No, I, yeah. <laughs> I just, I've yeah. done it, you know, and I, this is fine. Yeah. And do you think that has to do with, um, you know, whenever something, you do have a curiosity or an inspiration or something, you're just sort of following that and allowing yourself to just do that thing. And in that, you know, following there's just, I don't know, there's so much richness and pleasure. Well, all of that stems from acknowledging that there are certain intrinsic qualities in you as a person. And if you're able to exploit those and work with them and explore them, it, it's a matter of, of taking those intrinsic qualities and then realizing your identity. You, you learn who you are. I know who I am. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. It's been a pretty amazing but busy year, and with the new press, a lot of time has been devoted to books lately. I've really missed doing these, though, and I'm excited to share this new conversation with Baldwin Lee. With his new self-titled monograph, published by Barney Kulak's Hunter Point Press, Lee's work has really been getting a newfound attention that it deserves. The 80 photos in the book, edited from over 10,000 by Kulak, were made over 35 years ago on a series of cross-country trips through the southern U.S. At one point, he felt like he had honed in on a subject matter that would become his raison d'etre. Then he worked tirelessly for the next four years. Then he stopped. He decided that he had done what he needed to do, and that was it. Baldwin and I got together at an Airbnb in New York that he was staying at for some events around the book and a show of his which was opening at the Howard Greenberg Gallery. I asked him about his time at Yale in the early 70s, where he studied under Walker Evans. So I was there between 73 and 75. Mm. And was it considered an MFA at the time? Yes. It was? Yes. Because uh-huh. the uh, art school at Yale it was already very firmly established. And um, uh, so, so uh, photography was a newer discipline and it was actually an outgrowth of their graphic design program. So when I went there in 73, uh, that was uh, just the third class of people admitted into the program. And the program was uh, very small. They, they took four people a year. Oh, wow. Really? Mm-hmm. So your class was four people, that's it? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you studied under Walker Evans, right? Yes, yes. Right. In 75, uh, when I uh, got my degree, uh, Evans passed away a few months afterwards. So mm. really uh, was able to be with him the, the last few weeks of his life. Wow. Mm-hmm. What was he like as a teacher? Uh, he was uninvolved. <laughs> And, and uninterested. Uh-huh. Why should he have been any different? He was 75 years old, yeah. and it was far more important to look at his work, and it would have been completely unreasonable to ask him to explain it. You don't do that. Mm-hmm. And so you just listen to whatever it is that he was saying, and 
And you try to make sense out of that and draw connections. So we meet once a week, ostensibly to look at the work that, that we were doing and have Evans critique it. But the critiques largely consist of his uh, taking a stack of prints that, that one of us had made and, and, and flipping through them and handing them back to us, telling us that we were doing fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. He didn't want to be negative, but he wasn't exactly, I mean, no, no what, he the, wasn't interested. Yeah, yeah he wasn't it, interested. He didn't, you don't want the history of photography to look at student work. Right. <laughs> it's not reasonable. <laughs> yeah. But I, I read somewhere where, you know, you talked about it taking like, I don't know, the better part of a decade to really, for his work to open up for you to sort of get it. Yes, absolutely. What was it about it? You know, I, in undergraduate school, I, I studied at MIT and was introduced to photography through minor white. Mm. And so... That was a completely different experience. But with Evans's work, his, his work was really on the spectrum between um, the visual arts and the literary arts. Without a literary foundation, it would be impossible to understand what his intentions were and what it was his work was about. When I finished Yale, I knew I was largely uneducated. I went to MIT where... The only degree offered was a bachelor of science degree, so the vast majority of my classes were science and math classes. In my my years of college and grad school, I believe I took two English classes. Hmm. So I was not well read. Mm-hmm. I, I knew nothing about how to read. And so it took a long time before I was prepared to really be able to see an Evans picture and understand it. Right, right. I feel like I had the, a very similar experience. That's why I was, I was curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's amazing when that happens. I mean, when you don't get something or you see something and it almost seems like nothing or what is this? And then, you know, either someone shows you how to look or you somehow put the piece of the puzzle together yourself. It's, it's such a, um, I don't know, it's like the richness of looking at things or experiencing art. You know, for, for me, it, it was a physical experience. And that's why it's been a perennial uh, a practice in, in uh, people studying painting and drawing to sit and, and draw mm-hmm. from, from the thing. One of my first trips to the South I was in Natchez, Mississippi, uh, 50 years after Evans had been there. I sought out uh, one location in particular. The most frequently used title is uh, the Greek Temple. It's a Greek revival structure with four columns, uh, some steps leading up to it, and the standard frieze, the triangle. And it's on Main Street, uh, just a, a stone's throw from the Mississippi River. And I traveled with Evans's uh, books, along with books by the German August Sander. Mm-hmm. And so I, I opened up the book and I saw the photograph. What I wanted to do was take the picture he took 50 years ago. So I, I set up my, my four by five and plopped down. I figured out you sh- I should stand here. And I knew I'd have to touch it up when I got underneath a dark cloth. And then when he got underneath the dark, I said, look, I was unable 
to find a vantage point that produced this picture. Hmm. I went, I, I was, I was just going left, going right, you know, and what's going on here? So if you look at that photograph, it, it's, it's emblematic of uh, Evans's architectural style. That is that he likes to show you the facade of the building in an absolutely orthogonal manner. The top is, is horizontal, the bottom is horizontal, the verticals, are, everything's 90 degrees. But the only way I could get his picture was to stand obliquely and I would introduce a vanishing point. And I go, what the hell's going on? And I realized that what he had done was that he had stood to the side of the building, off center, and, and, but he aimed the camera so that the, uh, that the ground glass was parallel to the facade. So when you looked at the, on the ground glass, the, the building was like a side of it was being cut off. Hmm. What he did then by maintaining the parallelness between his ground glass and the facade, he made sure that the geometry was fixed. And then with the view camera, you're able to take the front and the back of the hitting <laughs> take the front and the back of the camera and you can shift them and and so what he did was he employed a lateral shift between the front and rear standards to recenter the picture mm. and and then i said well why did he go through such an elaborate measure when he could have just stood on the center line of the building taking the camera well the thing is if you look at the the wall uh, behind the columns you can see faintly the letters s i g and then you could see N and S. And, and so why Evans took that picture was he saw that it, it had become a sign painter's shop. Hmm. And with Evans's appreciation and study of architecture in his earlier career, his photographing of gingerbread architecture in, in New England, um, the, the, the photographs he made up in Saratoga Springs, uh, what, he, what he wanted that photograph to be about was a, a kind of sweet uh, vengeance that that the person who built this building in the antebellum period was a millionaire. And at this point in the history of the country, there were more millionaires in Natchez because of cotton than there were in New York. Hmm. And, and so this person built this Greek revival temple for himself in the fucking nothingness of, <laughs> of Mrs. <laughs> it's, a, mm -hmm. it's a damn, it's, it's a wasteland. There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing there. But he thought so highly of himself. Hmm. He, he, was, he was probably the precursor of Donald Trump. He right. built this as a monument to himself and, and to broadcast his importance to everybody. And Evans loved it that he... He, somewhere along his life, he lost it all. And the only person who would take, take the property was a guy who painted signs for a living. <laughs> and so he, that's what he wanted. And so what he was photographing was irony, mm -hmm. revenge. He was making reference to Greek tragedy. And, and so until I had that kind of knowledge and awareness of literature, and what it is writers are working on, what their think, thinking is, I didn't know. So I taught myself about Evans, not just by secondary sources. I put myself exactly there 
I stood in his footsteps. My tripod was in precisely, so I have a photograph of it that is exactly. That's an amazing, amazing experience, and it's an amazing story. But you have to know a lot of, see, but the thing is, is that there's nothing less demanding than photography. You just push the damn button, right? right. I mean, you know, if you, if you pull off your earphones for, and listen, it's, I mean, the button's being pushed like six trillion times a second, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and so, uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that uh, there's a, a huge difference between somebody who's pushing the button mindlessly and somebody who's pushing it with a deliberateness of purpose and with a sophistication of thought process, uh, somebody who is exceptionally critical and knowing and and with enormous ambition. This is the difference. Right. I mean, you know, if you don't do all of those things, if you aren't engaged in all of those things, if you don't possess the abilities to perform that way, you cannot be an artist. So, so you go, so you're in Natchez, you go, you, you notice this thing, you know, you, you notice this thing in this picture, it has this, uh, this uh, tremendous effect on how you see his work. But what were you, did you make, did you end up making your picture? How did that, um, uh, that experience lead to an opening up of your own work? You, you never know um, what it is that had occurred in your life uh, that, will possibly be recalled in the future uh, because of unforeseen circumstances. So, you know, we're sitting here in New York and I grew up in Chinatown, uh, just, you know, three subway stops from here. And in the 50s in Chinatown, Chinatown was, uh, was really uh, very interesting as I look back upon it. It may as well have been a walled city uh, because everybody I knew, everybody I went to school with, all of my parents' friends, all my friends, we were all Chinese, and we spoke Chinese. We didn't speak English until we went to school. And, and we hardly ever left Chinatown because we had everything that we needed there. It was its own state. Mm-hmm. And, and so even though I went on to... Um, become the valedictorian at one of the, the 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 selective specialized high schools in the city, and I went on to get degrees at MIT and Yale. I, I there there was a, a lot there was a lot I had absolutely no knowledge of, and, and it wasn't until I went to university that um, I discovered I was being presented with bodies of knowledge that had nothing to do with academic curricula. And it, it was, and, and what I was presented with were social, political, and economic realities that I had never been aware of. I did not know that there were different kinds of white people. Hmm. There were white people to me. I didn't know that a Jewish person and a Catholic person was different. I didn't know that a white person who was from Great Britain would be a different white person from South Africa. I didn't know that some people were so absurdly rich. It wasn't until I finished school that I realized I should never have 
admitted to any of my classmates that I was a scholarship student. I didn't know that that was a derogatory thing, that it labeled you as a second-class citizen. I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that if somebody's last name sounded familiar, it was familiar because this person was heir to that particular thing. I didn't realize one of my classmates, whose name is on a building at Yale, is in fact that person. And, and, And so I didn't know any of these things. And I didn't know about racism. I didn't know about classism. I didn't know about the hierarchy that had been in place forever. And that was because my insular upbringing in Chinatown shielded me from all that. And so all that stuff was just eye-opening to me. And so when I went into the South and traveled and I saw black Americans in both urban and rural areas, it touched something in me. And if there's ever been a constant in my life since I was a very young child was, uh, I've always had a a, a real deep uh, awareness of of, uh, fairness. Um, Can I ask you a question though? Sure. So race and class, become this thing that yes that you're thinking about a lot that you're feeling that you're feeling a lot it's becoming it's like very sort of pervasive in your life but the way you described um encountering all different types of racism and classism it's sort of there's um, a very broad spectrum of it but the work that you ended up making in the south what you ended up seeing it's very focused it's just yes. about black people Yes, and I'm just curious um, why or why, like why, why it became very specific. Visible, tangible result of racism uh, that was on display in many, many black communities in the South was so overwhelm, overwhelmingly. Uh, 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 um, uh, disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was unprepared. You know, I, I I grew up here in New York, and of course, you know, you you know, you go to, you know, you can't help but you know go through you know bad neighborhoods. Uh, but but this is you know the South was something else, and because I had been a student of Walker Evans, many of the places that I photographed were around or near the places that Evans had traveled to, and nothing had changed. Mm. <laughs> you know, you know, instead of a Model T Ford on the street, it, 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 it was like a, a 68 Ford Galaxy. You know, other than that, it was exactly the same. It was like, how is this possible? Evans was photographing at, at the time of Herbert Hoover, and and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and I was photographing near the time of Ronald Reagan, right. and from and and, uh, and that that and that nothing had changed. Yeah, it was like, what is this? Yeah. And this was like a, a stunning uh, 
revelation about America. How, right. how, 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 how is it that an entire population has not at all, even, even in superficial ways, been, been allowed to share in the, the, the riches of the country? I mean, you know, Reagan, um, his economic policy, uh, you know, during his presidency was this um, uh, trickle, it was called trickle down, where the theory was that the more you leverage the tax situation and, and, and governmental controls over, the more you allow them more favor and cutting tax and all this, that, that the benefit that the very wealthy and the corporations would reap would then trickle down to the other people. Yeah, but you didn't see any of that. You saw this well, sort of you, same you, situation. You, you just saw the bullshit. Right, right, right. It was just justification of the of the already powered grabbing more power, and without any kind of consideration for where it was coming from. Hey, it's a zero sum game. You know, if you're getting more money, it's coming from somebody. Right. You're not just printing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had intellectual interest, emotional feelings, and I also was like angry. Right. I was like absolutely furious to see it all. Yeah. 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 Now, but so there's something that I'm really interested in. You, you, you've spoken about, you know, making these first road trips and photographing all kinds of different things. Yes. You, you know, looking at all different kinds yes. of subject matter, yes. and then sort of not really having, you know. Uh, a, a specific subject matter in mind. Correct. And discovering it. Right. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about that, because that, that's a really interesting thing to me. Now, you know, as a, as a photographer, you photograph what's in front of you. And yeah. so when I moved to the South, I didn't know anything at all about it. I had, had never been there before. So the first trip I took was exploratory. So I had... On no list of subjects, I had no agenda, and anything and everything that interested me, I would stop and take a picture of it. So on that very first trip in 1983, I took pictures of architecture, landscape, close-up pictures, distant pictures, pictures of people, black, white, uh, old, young, well-to-do and not, just anything that I considered interesting. And it didn't take long in, in this trip. The trip was about 10 days. And I think after like three or four days, I knew exactly what it was that was most interesting. And it was uh, interacting with Black Americans and experiencing the interactions that occurred uh, after asking for permission to take pictures. I mean, that was like, I knew it with certainty. You know, in other other creative disciplines, uh, it, this is sometimes uh, called uh, finding your voice. Right. And do you think that those pictures, you know, once you found your voice or you found the things that you wanted to look at, do you think that as a result of that, the pictures themselves became better? Of course. Yeah. Because for the first time, there was a reason to make them. Mm -hmm. And... Maybe even more important than that, they were about something. Mm -hmm. They weren't about picture making. 
They weren't about making an object that would advance my career. They, they, they weren't about vanity. It was about something that was important in the world. They weren't about picture making? Hmm? They weren't about picture making? Well, you have to. Well, of course. You know, if you're writing a sentence, the, you, you have to employ your knowledge of syntax and all the rest of it. But sure. Yeah, yeah, but it's like I, I had for many, many years made pictures about picture making. Right. And that's what you learn in art school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, but there is um, there's a very particular kind of eloquence to your photos and another thing that I'm that I'm really curious about is that um, that the, the the your your seeing is very different than Evans. The kinds of pictures that you end up that you start to make is very different than. Of course, yeah. it, ha- it had to be right. But where where did that come from? A- everything. Yeah. A- Evans uh, uh, gr- grew up uh, in. In a, in a very well-to-do home, he went to Williams College. He went to Sorbonne. He was part of American aristocracy. He wore J Press jackets, peel English shoes. He drank champagne and went to cocktail parties. Mm-hmm. He was like what I learned. About. I learned more about that from Yale than I. That then he ever told me anything about photography. Right. And so he was a totally different man. During his picture-taking career, he never took a picture for himself. It was always made for a client. Right. He was a hired photographer to do a job. So if it wasn't uh, for, for Fortune magazine, if it wasn't for the FSA... If it wasn't for time, life, and a million other things that he did, he always took a picture and had a check coming in for it. There was never on his own volition just to go make photos? Well, yes, he did. Mm. But that's another story. But mm. that happened uh, after he made his important work. Right. But it's so. But I, I guess American Photographs comes along and it's, uh, I mean, that ends up being this new incarnation, this completely... It's a museum of modern art, yeah. you know, placing its stamp of approval on him, you know, mm-hmm. admitting him into the Hall of Fame. Right. No, but the, just the form of it and the, you know, it's so interesting, by the way, I keep, I, I was wondering what the horn is in the background. You know what it is? It's I don't the, know. It's the Jewish New Year today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a yeah, shofar. Yeah. It just yeah. hit me. It's been, it's yeah, been sort yes. of driving me crazy, so, but now yeah, I've been... Yeah, I, yeah. I know this is uh, Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> yeah. and, and atonement is coming. Right, like, right, exactly. Yom Kippur is coming. Because, like, uh, upstairs, uh, the roof is upstairs, and, and you know, in the middle of the day, there's, like, uh, all this furniture being moved around. So that uh, different people have rented out the roof for different events about the, okay. the, the holy days. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Anyway, so, sorry, yeah, sorry. So, <laughs> so I'm just saying that, you know... Uh, no, uh, the reason why he took pictures and and everything about his back, I mean, we could not have been two more different people. Right. Which I think is like really interesting because people always ask me about his influence. Yeah. And it, but the pictures don't look anything. No, like, well, yeah. it wasn't. Re- you know, it wasn't an influence. It was a a, a point of reference, right. really, more than influence. I, you know, I I don't work in school of Evans. Sure. What about the road trip as a mode, just that, the idea of that? I mean, it seems obvious now you took these road trips, but that's a, it, it's a very particular and classic um, 
mode of operating as a photographer, especially in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's like how can you be a photographer and not have Robert Frank in yeah. your head all the time? Oh, sure. And growing up in New York, I, I didn't have a car. I didn't learn how to drive until I was 21. And so having a car and having the highway in the South was, I mean. Amazing. It was thrilling. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and, uh, and, um, and the trips that I took were, were always exclusively for picture taking. And, uh, and only once did I have somebody accompany me and they were horrified. Uh, because it was uh, it was business from morning to night, mm -hmm. and it was not pleasant. I, I would spend hours in ninety eight degree temperature, ninety eight percent humidity, and I would stay out until it got dark. I would travel with these film holders that people are no longer familiar with. They're called graphmatics. And each held six sheets of film, and they shuffled them so I wouldn't have to carry individual film holders. And so it held six sheets, and I traveled with 16 of them, 96 sheets of film, and I would not go back to the hotel until I shot 96 sheets of film. Mm. And this is hard work. Yeah, It's really hard work. A an article about my book came out in the Washington Post uh, on Friday. Hmm. And and it's always so amusing. Uh, they publish comments that people write, and uh, and and somebody accused me. He said that uh, uh, my pictures are nothing, nothing more than vacation pictures. No way. Well, yeah. Who said that? Someone in the yeah, comments. Some, yeah, some guy. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And, but the thing, but the thing well, is, that's a bit insane. But I, but I, I I'd love that. And yeah. I, th I think that's great. <laughs> and, and, and but but the point is, is you would not want to take that vacation with me, right, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> it uh, no. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that travel agency would be belly up mm -hmm. in like no time if that was the kind of vacation they organized. Mm -hmm. I stayed in ten dollar a night motels. I mean, you know, it was it was like uh, it was tough. It was it, it was hard work. I, I was dedicated. I worked. I worked very hard. Mm -hmm. You know, I was single minded. I was possessed. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Baldwin Lee that we recorded in New York. His recent monograph was published this fall by Hunter's Point Press. To see more of his work and to browse our archive of over 50 interviews as well as our Magic Hour Press publications, visit us at magichourphoto.org. If you'll be in Berlin on November 2nd, we've been organizing a pretty amazing evening at Between Bridges to celebrate the third printing of Peter Hujar's day. We'll be screening four films by Gary Schneider, Moira Davey, Andy Warhol, and Hujar himself. Schneider will also be there in person to give a talk about one of his portrait sessions with Hujar. Also, if you'll be at Paris Photo next month, come and visit us at Polycopy. We'll have a table there with all of our recent books. Okay, here's Baldwin again. Hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation. How many of those road trips did you do? I wore out three cars. You wore out three cars. Yeah. Wow. So many, many, many. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, every time I went out, the uh, the drive would be more than two thousand miles, and right. uh, yeah. And at one point you stop, right? At one yes. point you, yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. After you've worn out those, you know, I wore everything out. Three sets of tires. You wore, I wore everything. Out. I wore everything out. Yeah. And what did you do? I mean, this is what in the early eighties. This is well, I started the project in eighty three, mm -hmm. and I stopped it in like ninety. Uh huh. Why did you stop? I was psychologically, emotionally, really exhausted. I could not get over the difference of the life I was leading relative to the life of the people I was photographing. Mm -hmm. I. It was just hard to, you know, I was able to, uh, to, to dodge that issue for seven years because I was, I was succumbing to my ambition to make good pictures. Mm -hmm. But after a while, after having made a bunch of good pictures, I just couldn't avoid doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one trip in particular when I drove from Tennessee into Georgia and after four or five hours, I stopped someplace and I saw something that I got really excited to photograph. The way that photographers antenna alert them to, hey, this is going to be a picture kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. And it was a man mowing his lawn. And he was shirtless and he was pushing his lawnmower with one arm and his other arm had been amputated. And, and I was really excited. This is going to be a great picture. And... When I heard myself thinking that, I said, Baldwin, you are getting excited because this man is an amputee? What kind of, what kind of shit have you become? Mm -hmm. I said, and I, I just, it was like a come to Jesus moment. And I said, oh, I don't, this is what I've made myself into. So I, I, I never got out of the car. I turned around and I drove back four or five hours. I never, never stopped to pull my camera out. Because I was like so horrified at how, of what I had become. That was like the worst. I don't, I don't want to be that. Hmm. Uh, you know, you know, you go to high power places and you see, you see the manifestation of ambition. And it's not pretty. I mean, you know, here we are sitting in Manhattan. It's like, why does everybody from Iowa and Oshkosh come to New York? It's because of ambition. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it will potentially yield a lot of good. You know, people will accomplish things that might help, you know. But, but it's also ugly. Mm -hmm. It's also, I mean, you don't, you don't achieve anything without clawing over somebody else's back. And so I, I didn't want to do that. And, and, and then the other set of reasons uh, uh, came from an overview I, I have of, uh, of art and artists. Reading artist biographies, it's notable that the majority of the really great artists, and they did their best work in a very limited period of time in their lives, usually five to seven years. You know, be that person a mathematician, a composer, a writer, a painter. And, um, and in talking about Walker Evans, 
John Sarkowski, the curator of photography, um, made this stunning statement where he said that almost any picture that you know Evans by was made in an 18-month period. Hmm. 1935 and 1936. Hmm. He died in 1976. And so what the other interpretation of Sarkowski's statement is that Evans didn't make anything worth spitting on for 40 years. Hmm. He did his best work without knowing he had done it as a young man and made gazillions of pictures after that never ever to make one that would match what he had done as a young man. Mm. But he kept trying. And it had to be very, 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 very difficult because you, you wake up every day and you think, I know so much more than I did know then. I'm so much better now than I was then. I have all these resources. I have money, I have friends, I have me. I, I have everything in place to do more, more of what I did and better than what I did. But the fact of the matter is, I, your resources and situation has nothing to do with it. I knew I no longer had the courage to be out. I mean, when I was in the middle of the project, I, I can like list a number of times I've had guns pulled on me, rifles pointed at my face. And, you know, I think back now, and I don't believe that I was this person, but it never fazed me. I would just talk my way out of the situation and keep taking pictures as if nothing happened. I, I, didn't, I was not afraid. Mm. I was not shaken. I was able to do things that I think about doing today. You know, back then when I quit, I was a father you know, family man, you know, and I, you know, I knew I couldn't do this stuff. And so I knew personally I couldn't do it anymore. And if I did try to do it, I knew that what I would be doing would be engaging in a personal fraud. Hmm. I would be doing it because I was hoping to do something that I could not do again, mm -hmm. or I would be, or worse than that, I would be doing something for the purpose of like trying to market it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the other reason is that anybody who has done anything that may have moved their discipline forward, if they have exhausted that peak period of their creativity and continue to try to do more, they're doing an enormous disservice to the discipline that they professed love, passion, and respect for. They are dishonoring their profession. And so the vast majority of, of contemporary artists whose work is well known, who have been fortunate enough to have benefited from the blush of, of, of momentary genius, who are still making work, are making it for reasons that have nothing to do with why art should be made. Hmm. Maybe. Not maybe. It's a <laughs> fact. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking of how... No, it's a fact. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I there's, mean... Always, there's, al there's <laughs> always the Andre Cortezes of the world. There's always sure. the Picassos. 
you know, who can. Yeah, the outliers. But but no, but but the majority of people. Yeah. If Wintergram were still alive and taking pictures in the street. Yeah. The thing you're talking about is it's it's extremely fascinating because and I, I to, to me the 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 um the most interesting part is how when people make really great things, there are so many ingredients that go into it that you can't really figure it out. People themselves can't figure it out. They don't know how they did it. And, you know, I, I, I go to the Greenberg Gallery and yeah. look at all my pictures on a wall. Mm-hmm. This is your show up, which is yeah, up yeah, right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I look at them and go, those look pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and I look at them and I say, um, how did I do those? Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't remember ever having had the ability to make a picture like that. Right. I don't remember it. And 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 the 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 definition of a, a really good work is that um, after you have done it, you look at it and you say, "Did I do that?" And what that means is that it turned out better than what you had wanted for or what you intended. Right. I that mean- is. That is good work right better or worse it's never really as you intended yeah. it yeah right you know arbus said it right they turn out better or worse right and 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 the thing is when it turns out better you can't take credit for it so yeah. my way of working is when photographing people is i see something that somebody's doing that i think is really quite beautiful it's a physical thing how they're leaning how the the tilt of their head the way the sun is as i approach it i and what I do is after, after talking and introductions and stuff and asking permission, when permission is given, I will try to say, the, the next question a person asks is always, what do you want me to do? Right. I said, when I saw you, you were leaning, you had one leg up here and, and, and your torso was turned this way, but I said, can, can you kind of do that? And he, so they just, the person will try to do that. And since I'm not a director and they're not an actor, they, it, it turns out different. And I, I'll say some more things. I'm, I'm trying to get it to be the way that I had seen it. And then every once in a while, you know, with the view camera, I'm standing to the side of the camera. There's no camera between me and the person. I'm not looking through a view, uh, an eye thing. And then some, every once in a while, somebody does something that's like just so much fucking better, just fucking <laughs> better than so this. You could have imagined this gift. Yeah. is presented to you and you're just lucky to do this. Right. That's it. Yeah. The thing that you just made and you made it because you know it wasn't there before you you had to do all this stuff to do it. You 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 really are not entitled to claim ownership of it. You may have started it but something or someone or somewhere lent a helping hand, you know. Some beam of light came from somewhere and Bang. Right. And so, you know, and you know, that's why I tried ten thousand times. Yeah. Always with the Yeah, you're the always hope ho- the possibility. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you know, hope springs eternal. Yeah. And you know, and and it, it and it eternal. and when it happens, it's so it th- th- that that's the drug. That's mm-hmm. the high. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that hit is it. 
and uh, mm. you know, you you know, you're just craving for it. And you know, I mean, there are long, 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 long dry spells where what you do is like competent. It's exactly what you wanted. You didn't fail, but it's not good. <laughs> I relate to everything you're talking about a lot, a lot. So tell me, how did the book come about? This is, uh, it's like 30 years later, right? Um, 35, yeah. 35 years yeah. later after making the work. I, you know, I, I, I'm, people, people are really sort of uh, astonished uh, when, they, when, when they discover that I had very little professional ambition. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've hardly shown mm-hmm. and hardly have published. I've only done enough to get promotion and tenure at my job mm-hmm. to keep my job. Um, but I never wanted, I was never interested in becoming famous or well-known or anything. Mm-hmm. And, and so four years, literally four years ago, um, um, I had a couple of prints in a small museum in New Orleans. You know, a place where maybe 200 people might have seen the pictures, mm-hmm. you know, during the month that they were up. You know, big group show. I was like one of like, I don't know, two dozen photographers, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and my publisher, Barney Kulak, who lives here in the city, his publishing house is called Hunter Point Press. He happened to be in New Orleans and he happened to go to the show and he happened to see my pictures. And he contacted the curator there and asked contact information for me. And he sent me an email asking Mm -hmm. if my work had ever been published and if I might be interested in having something published. So I responded. And then uh, maybe three or four months later, I I came to New York. I met with him. And I was immediately convinced that he was the right person. He has a studio and home in Long Island City. So when I went to visit with him, I saw what books he had. Mm -hmm. Then I saw what art he had. Mm -hmm. He had uh, a Stieglitz steerage. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had uh, uh, a Winograd, a Walker Evans, an Alcassander, a Ouija. Mm -hmm. I said... I think this guy knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, because I had been approached by other people over the years, and I I got no no thanks. Mm -hmm. And and so that's how it began, Mm -hmm. just by happenstance. Nothing that I sought out, nothing he had ever expected to find. And now it's become this like multinational conglomerate Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like wild amazing and he edited the book right mm-hmm. you let him i you know i haven't done anything about any of this mm-hmm. the pictures in the greenberg gallery i i said put up whatever you want you didn't care no why because it's not my work anymore it's 40 years ago what do you mean what does that have to do with anything it's still it's, it's, it's your work i don't care Hmm. I'm totally hands off. Hmm. The the books, the pictures in the book, I I the only stipulation I made was I had 20 favorites. These have to be it. Anything else you want, hmm. you know, whether it's a picture of 20 
a, a, a book of 20 pictures or 2,000 Put in whatever else you want and sequence them the way that you want and, mm -hmm. and you know, design it the way that you want. And I turned down every request for input. Hmm. Really? I didn't care. Hmm. I don't care. Hmm. Did you not care then either? Like, I mean, 35 years ago, after you finished, you know, I, you made all these, you made I, all these road trips, I, you were making the work. Yes, I, I, I had done good work. Yeah. And that's all I, th that was the only thing I, I wanted to have done. Right. I accomplished what I had set out to do. Right. But and, and now all this is just icing on top. I'm, a, you know, people ask, are you excited about what's going on? I go, uh, not really. Excited is not the right word. The The word I'm using is I'm amused. Yeah. <laughs> I'm amused that you, that you came here. This is very amusing to me. Right. But let me ask you a question. You make, you make this good work. You feel it and you know it. If you don't show it, if no one sees it, does it exist? I, I you didn't care. It's, it's not my concern. No, mm -hmm. I, I embracing myself for like having to deal with like racist people tonight at the opening, asking me questions. Mm -hmm. It you doesn't think, matter. You think that all you're expecting that you have to expect it. Mm -hmm. hmm. You know, it's yeah. like the vacation guy. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, the other comments in the post article are about, you know, mm -hmm. more pictures of poor black people. You know, it's like, it's just, okay, mm -hmm. you know, but that's how, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you know, you know, 40% of American voters said that they still support Trump. I mean, it's like, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, they're out. Everybody's out there. Yeah. But I'm, okay, hang on. I mean, we're almost done here, by the way. This has been fantastic. Thanks. You must be a great teacher. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, you don't teach anymore. No, no, retired. I I, I did teach on Saturday. Oh yeah. Yeah, I gave a, a talk to collectors and some people hmm. at the gallery, and there was one person who just kind of was there. Hmm. A, a, a young man. Um, he came up to me after the talk, and he, he and he said, "Can I take a picture in front of one of your pictures?" I go, "Sure," hmm. and and then he was. He pulled out a, a little, I don't know what it was, a little, it wasn't his phone, but a, a little camera that was about the size. Mm -hmm. And he said that, you know, he really loved photography and was trying to get better at it. He'd been working on it for a few years. And, and when he pulled out his camera, he, he was like really, mm -hmm. he was shaking. He was like so nervous. Mm -hmm. And then he asked if I still taught. And I go, no, no, uh, you know, that's in my past. And he goes, uh, is there any kind of advice that you can give me about, you know, you know, getting better in photography. So I said, when I was a teacher, you know, one of the things that you're tasked with is coming up with assignments to give your students, you know, and, you know, there's always like the standard assignments, you know, photograph your room, you know, photograph mm -hmm. your family, uh, go to some place you've ever been, you know, it's like, you know, whatever. It's, you, you just want them to get out and, and look a little bit harder at what was in front of them. And, and, I, and I discovered in teaching that the very best assignment I ever gave, and this is based upon my experiences in being a photographer, was that if you had to ask for permission, that upped the ante tremendously. Hmm. And it would force you to become somebody you may not be. Because not everybody is, well, you, you can tell I'm kind of confident and... Mm -hmm. And, and I've been accused of being a blowhard, just uh -huh. kind of <laughs> arrogant, whatever. Mm -hmm. I, 
guilty on all counts. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I told him <laughs> that that when when I was in this position, I was like extremely shy, had no ability to talk to strangers, felt really uncomfortable among groups of people. The first class I taught, which was at Yale after I had finished uh, the grad program, I was showing a class how to load a roll of 35 millimeter film into a camera. And I was so nervous, I was shaking so badly, I couldn't get the film cassette into the camera. And I was stuttering so badly, I had to terminate the class after 10 minutes. At, and I walked straight to the department head's office and I said, I offered him my resignation. I can't do this. Mm -hmm. then, then I said, you know, before I took these pictures in the South, I, I forced myself for, for over two years with a view camera to walk up to people to ask for permission. And this was the hardest thing I'd ever done in photography. And I told them I made two years of horrible pictures. But the, at the end of the two years, I had changed myself. It, it wasn't about the pictures. It wasn't about making better pictures. I changed myself from being a really shy, nervous, anxiety-ridden person to somebody who was essentially fearless. So when I came into the South, I would think nothing of walking up to a door and knocking mm -hmm. and going in. There was nothing for me that would be off limits. Mm -hmm. Night or day, whatever, I would just go anywhere. And, and, and I said, you have to put yourself into uncomfortable positions with your camera where you have to ask for permission. So you, you have to dedicate yourself to only photographing where the subject that you want to photograph is under the jurisdiction of some other entity or it's a person that you have to ask permission. There's no surreptitious photography allowed, no drive-bys. You have to get somebody to tell you yes. It might mean you're having to like write a letter, research for, for ownership, uh, work your own contacts. Do you have an uncle in that business? You have to do all of this. And you cannot do anything else you're not allowed to do any other picture until you get to the point where you can do this in your sleep. So I, I taught him. So we had a photography class yeah. in the gallery that was like a three minute class. Mm. And, uh, and, and I could tell he was. Appreciative. Yeah, he knew. Inspired. Cause he knew he, Look, you never teach anybody anything. They already know it. Yeah. <laughs> they know it deep down inside. So sure. you're, you're only just agreeing with them. That, <laughs> that, yes, indeed, you are right. Just go ahead. Now. Or lighting the fire somehow. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so, so that was it. You know, that, that's how it works. Hmm. <laughs> I can't help but thinking about this time when you stopped in mm -hmm. the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what your... What's your idea of success meant to you at the time? Uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't no, but because I because I I get the feeling of the the feeling of success in the making of the work. Yeah, this being the most important thing. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, and the only thing that mattered. And then you right. did it, and you knew it. Yeah, 
Yeah. But then once you did it, mm-hmm. you had, you were, how old? You, you were in your late thirties? Uh, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. You still, I mean, there are many, many years in front of you. I saw Walker Evans. You saw Walker, but okay. I, I saw. But, I but, saw but, 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 but let's say, but even, you know, not even seeing that and knowing that you didn't want to continue making work, there was something, um, you know, you felt like you had done it. What yeah. did success mean to you at the time? What else did you want to do? I have done a lot of things. Yeah. I've been a lot of things. I am not any of them. I'm not a photographer. I'm not a husband. I'm not a father. You know, I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm not any of those things. I am who I am. I happen to have done those things. And I, I felt that I needed to, to do what I could to do them well. But I am not any of those things. I owe those things nothing. What do you mean? I don't need to do any more of those things. I have a million other things that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching myself things. Like what? When I was still teaching, I started to take classes in the English department of the university. I wound up taking more classes than necessary to get an English degree because I was telling a story about the importance of literary context at Evans' work. So I took classes in writing, in literature, uh, creative writing, nonfiction writing, um, uh, then I went on to take classes in Africana studies. Hmm. I went on to take classes in, in the classics department, in, in philosophy. I wanted to become educated. And, and so that was every bit as fulfilling and thrilling as like taking pictures. These were worlds I knew nothing of. And it was like so rewarding to like get it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, so in English, in writing... Uh, when creative writers talk about how they form a character on page, they, they talk about interiority. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to photograph when I was photographing. I wanted to photograph interiority. I wanted to photograph something about not what was here, but something in there. And I go, yeah. And so I, so that's what I did for a, a, a significant part of the time. And I devoted myself to it completely. And, you know, and I do all sorts of dumbass stuff, too. I've taught taught myself how to be a mechanic. And so I've restored a a BMW 2002, 1975. I totally have taken a whole damn thing apart. And I've rebuilt the whole damn... I taught myself how to do all this stuff. And thank God for YouTube. (laughs) No, you know, I've also taught myself uh, to be a really, really good cook. Huh. I'm really good. What do you like to cook? <laughs> a lot, everything. Uh, there's a dish called uh, Singapore noodles. Are you familiar? It's a curry based. Yeah. Uh, rice noodles. And I taught my, and I worked like a son of a bitch because rice noodles are like weird animal. You, the first few times I tried it, you boil the rice noodles. And if you don't do it right, it turns out to be this glob of like hot snot. Uh-huh. Cooking is very much like art making. It's like, you kind of know what you want. Hmm. And every once in a while, it turns out better than what you want. Right. Like, yes. <laughs> I'm always doing something. So the important thing, I mean, so just so keeping busy and keeping inspired with whatever no, just, it is, as long as it's been that. The, the, your, your, your curiosity in the world, the, the fact that the world is endless and there, there are riches there that are begging to be indulged in, 
for you not to like take advantage of that is like silly. Yeah. So I am not a label. You know, when you meet someone at your party, the first question, oh, what do you do? You know, I, that's not, that has nothing to, the question should be, who are you? Yeah. yeah. Not how, what are you, who are you? Yeah. How did, okay, so you grew up, your, your parents were Chinese immigrants, right? Correct. And they, you know, their dream was for you to go to MIT, for you to get that formal education, for yes. you, for their son to be successful. Asian parents are the worst. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, all the memes on uh, Reddit about the you know, Asian parent, <laughs> uh-huh. they're true. Wow, Reddit, I'm impressed, Baldwin. Yeah. You know, so I have an Instagram site now because Barney, my publisher, put it up for me. I knew nothing about social media. Yeah. But now I'm hip. Uh-huh. I am the least technologically sophisticated person to ever ever have a degree from MIT. Uh-huh. So no technology, but uh, but okay, but the thing that I'm curious about, maybe and tell me if, if I'm if I keep on pushing this too much, you could tell me, but your parent and there, there was definitely this big um advocacy for success, for being successful. But you see It was not advocate ultimatum. Ultimatum. But you <laughs> seem to have taken this path that is so much your own and that is so you really constructed your own idea of what that meant for you. And was that just sort of, did that just happen over time? Was there something like, um, where did that realization come from? Where, my first is, there, cl- is there any Buddhism in? in- my, my, my first class at MIT in photography with Minor White, mm-hmm. he was the first artist I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and, he spoke as much about Eastern mysticism and Zen Buddhism and, and, and uh, drug experience. This is like 1969, okay? It was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said more about this uh, that, you know, than he did about photography. And that just like overwhelmed me. So when I graduated, I never told my father I was taking photography classes. So when we were driving back from Cambridge, and he said, son, now what are you going to do? And I told him, I'm going to be a photographer. Mm-hmm. And my father never showed any emotion. And then I looked over. He's crying. Uh, really? That was like a fucking, uh-huh. you know, that was not good. Yeah. I broke his heart. Yeah. But you didn't care. I mean, no, you, I of did. course, you didn't I, want to did break care, his heart, but you wanted to. But, I, you know, I, yeah. I was not going to, like. I was not going to, like, do math. I was not going to do engineering. There was no way I was going to do that. Yeah. Baldwin Lee, you are such an interesting guy. I'm so glad we got to do this today. It was my pleasure. You're a great interview. You asked really, really good questions. Thank you. (laughs) You make it very easy. Thanks so much for, uh, for doing this with me. That was my conversation with Baldwin Lee that we recorded in New York. This episode is produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Ellen Payne Smith. Original music for the show by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, listen to any of our old interviews, and order any of our recent publications, visit us at magichourphoto.org. So nice to be back and looking forward to sharing some new conversations in the next little while with you. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.